There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey everyone, it's Alden, the producer of Shut Up Evan. This episode was recorded remotely during quarantine. You might notice some changes in audio quality throughout the episode, but the content is just as good. So stay home, stay healthy, and enjoy the episode. On today's show, the legend himself, Isaac Mizrahi. A fashion designer, costume designer, author, comic book writer, talk show host, cabaret performer, reality competition show judge, and more, Mizrahi talks about growing up Jewish. Hanukkah was like not that glamorous. And there you had Christmas and it was just trees and Santas and, you know, Mitzi Gaynor Christmas specials. And I don't know what the fuck, right? And we had menorahs and the Maccabees. Making his runway debut in 1988. When I came onto the runway, I saw Veronica Webb, you know, like she came off at the end of the show and she said to me, you're the king of New York. And I said to her, you know what, just stop fucking. Like I thought that she was being nice, like because I thought I was about to be destroyed. Being one of the first designers to stack his front row with celebrities. Liza Minnelli happened to be a friend of mine and she was interested in coming and she came. Or Sandra. And Sandra brought brought Roseanne and Madonna would come to the show and Robert De Niro because he liked a lot of them. He liked seeing the models. I mean, he didn't give a shit about my clothes, right? The state of fashion. I still love surprise. And now I just hate fashion. I just hate it. I think it's the worst. It's partially what it's become. It's just become this kind of like clown sideshow thing. No, really, I mean this. I'm just going to say it to you. But even the greatest show in the world is a bunch of skirts and sweaters and like I, I, and a lot of styling. I mean it. And that can sound bitter. I don't mind if that sounds bitter because I think maybe that'll help people doing it to make it better and a controversy that erupted after his February endorsement of then-presidential contender Mike Bloomberg. I was very, very surprised that people saw him that way because I don't. I don't see him as this vicious, evil oligarch, you know? I see him as this really smart guy who built this huge kind of empire and and made a lot of money. Shut up, Evan! Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am joined once again by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. We have a really exciting guest on the show. Yes. Um, Someone that I am a huge, huge fan of. I cannot underline that enough. He is such an important figure within fashion and just within like... I think of young me seeing a really explicitly like faggity fag gay guy 
on television and reading about him and, and, and just feeling so connected to him. So I'm so excited. Isaac Mizrahi. But before we talk to Isaac, I sort of wanted to talk about fandoms in general. Okay. Because Isaac is such a fascinating figure to me because 25 years ago, he was one of the most famous fashion designers in the world. I talked to fashion historian James Scully ahead of this interview, and he said, quote, it was really the troika of Isaac Mizrahi, Todd Oldham, and Anna Sui. They were the hottest tickets in New York at the time. And I just think about those three names, and I'm like, they aren't front of the tongue anymore, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. And it's fascinating to me to look at how figures that were once so culturally dominant are sort of pushed to the side or lose their footing or just don't stay on top of the mind for whatever reason. Like I was trying to think of an example of two stars who came out at the same time, who kind of one outpaced the other. And I was thinking about Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears. Yes. Because they really came out at the same time. Jeannie in a Bottle dropped eight months after Baby One More Time. And how much Britney Spears, for whatever reason, has maintained an ephemeral fame that just didn't happen for Christina. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at their Instagram following, okay? And Britney has 24 million followers and Xtina has seven. Obviously, how many followers you have on Instagram, um, it's not the most valuable system at which to judge this, but it's not meaningless. And it does just sort of show us that someone like Britney, who by the way, recently burned down her gym, Mm-hmm. Um, but someone like Britney is able to sort of captivate people in a way that someone like Christina did not, despite the fact that their careers at one time really did align. And I bring this, I bring all of this up because I think it's interesting to see the long-term effects of stand culture and how that keeps figures like a Britney, like a Lindsay Lohan for sure, relevant, even though they're no longer really producing work. Mm-hmm. All this to say that I am fascinated by sort of who's able to have that stand them and who sort of keeps those figures zeitgeisty. Um, who do you stand? I don't know if I stand specific people. I was kind of thinking about this. Like, there are actors that I like that, like, if they are in something, I will immediately be intrigued. But I don't uh, know anything about their lives. I don't really, like, follow them for the day-to-day. Um, I think if anything, I kind of like am more fans of like franchises. I'm like a huge Star Wars and Star Trek fan. Those are probably the biggest two. But that's interesting because that franchise has such a rabid or both of those franchises have such rabid standums that it's almost like you don't need to stand those celebrities because they are so ingrained within the fabric of being a fan of that franchise that yeah. you kind of, it's like a proxy fandom almost. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a fandom of the characters themselves more than the actors that portray them. Yeah. And with Star Trek, it's like the ideals behind the aspirations of like a Starfleet. Those are the things that you're kind of rallying behind. What's so interesting about both Star Trek and Star Wars is like, and I mean, you know about them way more than I do, but I do know that they have iterations that sort of continue the legend. So in the case of Star Wars, there was two different um, trilogies that came after the original. Am I right? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, yeah. And in the case of Star Trek, there's various series that Mm -hmm. have aired over the years. I remember, like, funny enough, because back in the day when Buffy went to UPN, their only other, like, big show at the time was Star Trek Enterprise, mm-hmm. I want to say. Yep, okay. early 2000s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so 
it's interesting because I wonder what sort of cultural space, like, I, okay, let's talk about Star Wars. I okay. wonder had we only gotten the second trilogy, the one that was less well received. Yes, the prequels. I wonder how much cultural cachet Star Wars would have if it didn't have the ability to have sort of been rebooted and not only literally, but also kind of in people's minds have new merch come out. I wonder sort of like the space it would hold. And it's just interesting which properties remain and which properties don't. And same with celebrities. I mean, I, I always think about like, like Linda Hamilton mm -hmm. in The Terminator and just like, she was this huge actress. And it's like now, I mean, I know there was recently another Terminator made with her in it. Yep. But she, again, is an example of someone who just kind of didn't, find a foothold on celebrity and not to say that's what she wanted necessarily. I wonder if that's part of it. Like I think of for some actors and people that we perceive as celebrities, they are there for the craft mm -hmm. and the artistry of what they do. They can't give a shit about the fame aspect of it. And then for some folks, the fame is what they want. Like later in the interview, Isaac mentions what he's doing now, which is interesting as opposed to like the runway shows, like where where are his outlets? And he is an artist and a creator and he is seeking fulfillment in his like craft. But maybe that's part of the reason that it's not about like chasing that audience for the runways. It's about doing the creative work itself. And because that twists and turns and the outlets happen in different ways, audiences, don't know how to like follow along. Right, it's almost like, it, you know, for instance, we're talking about these fandoms and, you know, we mentioned like Star Trek or, or Star Wars or even thinking about like Drag Race. It's like, these are things that you you know what to expect every week. They're templates, whether it be yep. the characters or, or the format or whatnot. And so even though it deviates at times or it might, you know, last night, for instance, on Drag Race, there was a double save, but it's like, even that is a template we've seen before. So it feels comfortable. It's like, it's it's satisfying in a sense. Mm -hmm. And when you have someone, as you say, that's sort of like really in it for the artistic process. Um, and you can be, you can want both, I want to say, but when your eye is really towards the artistic process, and you're less thinking about the audience and what and and satisfying their cravings i think as a result it might perhaps be harder to cultivate that fandom because the fandom doesn't feel fed yeah they get mad and it's like an example of that is star wars and in the newest sequel trilogy the second one came out the last jedi and it took a hard left turn from what a Star Wars movie is and the themes of Star Wars and the type of story that's being told and fandoms tore to shreds. Which is why it's like, I sense this and I, and I, I hope listeners will too, but there's like this, there's a freedom about the way Isaac talks about his life path, which is yes. not that fashion left him. It's that he left fashion because yes. it's like, he didn't want to give the people, the fandom what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I, it's not even that I think he actively didn't want to. I think he just didn't care. So anyway, without any further ado, let's turn it. Let's actually turn it over to our interview with Isaac Mizrahi. He is one of the most important designers within the history of American fashion. Period. Even cats don't get as many lives as this man. First, there's the fashion prodigy, once named the New York Times' hottest new designer. He worked with Perry Ellis, Jeffrey Banks, and Calvin Klein before starting his own business in New York City in 1987. 
With his striking originality, the Council of Fashion Designers of America awarded him with the Perry Ellis Award in 1988 and the Women's Wear Designer of the Year Award in 1989. Beyond fashion, there's the costume designer whose work has appeared in theater, operas, and films. There's the businessman who created ultra-successful lines for QVC and Target. There's the cabaret performer with sold-out shows at Manhattan's famed Cafe Carlisle. There's the Project Runway All-Stars judge, the comic book writer, the talk show host, the best-selling author, the list goes on and on. In 2016, the first major exhibition devoted to his career opened at the Jewish Museum in New York City, and in 2019, he published his memoir, I Am. He's an original, he is a genius, he really is. He is a person who understands the meaninglessness of life. He is one of my heroes. He is Isaac Mizrahi. So Isaac, I can't not start this interview without gratitude for you making the time. You are one of the most important figures in popular culture for me ever. And I am just, it's a career milestone to be able to spend this time with you. This is amazing for me to hear. What makes you like me so much? What about me makes you so erect? <laughs> um, I don't think there's any figure that I've connected with more in terms of sensibility. So I think it has to do with your Jewish identity. I think it has to do with your flamboyance, your love of New York City and your pride in that. And the way you look at the world has all, and the way you articulate that way in which you look at the world has always captured me, always. Thank you, Evan. That's so, I'm so pleased to hear this. I love it. I want to kick things off by going a little bit meta. Do you enjoy being interviewed? Yes. I can't lie. <laughs> I do. I mean, I have to say, especially when it's a bunch of smart people interviewing me and not, you know, some dumb junket where they're just asking the same questions about the same projects, you know? Yeah, I do like being interviewed. I mean, um, I think I like therapy better than I like being interviewed because you're paying someone to not ask questions and to just listen to you speak, you know? So it's really great. That's like the most fabulous thing in the world because I'm a huge narcissist maniac, egomaniac. But, but I do like being interviewed because I learn from it and because, you know, again, it's about moi. Toujours, darling. Toujours sur moi. So I want to talk about your childhood. You grew up in Brooklyn in a very conservative Sephardic Jewish household. I just finished watching the Netflix series Unorthodox. Have you seen it? You know, I watched like a, a good part of the first episode and it's so wonderful, but I couldn't do it only because it was so familiar to me. You know, I couldn't do it. I didn't feel like watching such ugly, ugly circumstances. I couldn't look at such an ugly thing right now. Um, I couldn't watch Tiger King either for the exact same reason. It was just too many ugly, like, white people, you know? It's too many <laughs> yes. ugly white people right now. Yeah. Um, I mean it. Like, so I can't watch these ugly things. That's a horrible thing to say, but it's the truth. I mean it. I ask because I'm curious about you sort of coming to understand your Jewish identity. When did you first realize that you were Jewish and what it meant to be Jewish? Like when I was a kid, I, we were Jewish. There was no choice in the matter. I was sent to a very Orthodox yeshiva and the shul I went to was Orthodox. You know, I mean, it was anomalous because it was Sephardic. So there were like low cut dresses and high heels and big hair. And then rabbis with like baskets, you know, like a shirt with 
high and a hairy chest. And it was like really weird. It was this incredible kind of piety and yet flamboyance, you know, like it was a funny thing. And then in school, it was rabbis that looked like rabbis, which to me is more straightforward. You know, if you're going to be a rabbi, you got to look it, you know, because if you're a rabbi and you smell good and you have a big package, like what kind of bait and switch is that, right? Yeah. It was really confusing in shul. And then in school, it was much kind of more like these are the ugly rabbis that smell bad. And their wives who wear wigs that make them look purposely worse. You know, I don't understand that. And you're talking to someone who like loves a wig, okay? Like I love a wig but not for the purpose of making yourself look worse, okay? So anyway, the point is that there was no choice and I resented it because it it was really not the prettiest. You know, like my cousins who lived on Park Avenue, you know, and they had this gorgeous apartment and this incredible house on Sands Point, right? And my cousin's mom was this incredible painter called Julia Sherman and had these giant, like these insane colorful paintings everywhere. They were like these geometrical color kind of studies that were bordering on psychedelia. They were incredible. Like from like the 1950s, she started doing these paintings anyway. And so they were all over and it was something so great. It was so glamorous. And there we were kind of like, you know, struggling behind in flats as Veronica Webb used to say, I'm struggling behind in flats. Thank you so much. (laughs) Gave the high heels to Kate Moss and I'm struggling behind in flats, right? So that's what I felt like. Like even Jews on Park Avenue who weren't so orthodox and who just kind of accepted and assimilated and and kind of got into the modern world and the innovations of the modern world, instead of going like, no, no, we can't eat on kosher. We can't do things because 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, it was unhealthy to eat things with split hooves or like shellfish. You know, we've made a lot of advances since even the 16th century, even the 15th century, you know, so it's like somehow they're not living. And then, of course, right, like forget about my cousins, but, you know, I used to watch non-Jews on Christmas. Like, you know, they get presents and we kind of got like shitty presents on Hanukkah. Maybe that was maybe that was it. Hanukkah was like not that glamorous. And there you had Christmas and it was just trees and Santas and, 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 you know, Mitzi Gaynor Christmas specials. And I don't know what the fuck, right? And we had menorahs and the Maccabees, you know? It just didn't feel just, it didn't feel fair. I remember my grandmother was really big on making Gelt seem like it was a significant contribution to Hanukkah. And we were like, Grandma, like, Bobby, we can have chocolate, you know, all year round. This is not some special delicacy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So as you know well and discuss in your memoir, I Am, there was a conflict between being gay and being Jewish. On top of that, cultural acceptance of gay people was nowhere near where it is today. How did this tension manifest itself for you? Um, Well... I will say in advance, like, I'm really sorry to all of those Orthodox Jews who actually are gay and who are out. I will, I will apologize to them. But I don't personally think that you can be Jewish and gay. I actually dated this one guy, Bruce, in Chicago, who I, I adored. He was great. And he was somehow, like, much more religious than I was. And he was gay, Right. And I was like, Bruce, like, how is that possible? Like, you tell me, like, did you not read the same Bible that I re- read 
wherein, you know, they talk about stoning homosexuals. Like that's what is in black and white or black and parchment or whatever, you know? It's like, it says like stone homosexuals, right? You cannot lie with another man. Like, I'm not sure how you get over that, right? I don't understand it. But then again, I don't understand like Christians who are gay either. Of course, culturally, it's dyed into the fabric of who I am. I am Jewish, right? But I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. And I apologize to those who actually do believe in God and are gay. Hooray for them. I think that they have some kind of information about it or some kind of trust in something that I just don't. I'm extremely skeptical and I'm extremely nihilistic. Like, as you get to know me, I just think nothing has any meaning. And especially now, nothing has meaning, right? I'm currently in the midst of reading Proust, Marcel mm-hmm. Proust. I'm up to book four of Remembrances of Things Past, which is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, at some point in your life, you have to read these books because he literally goes into every single aspect of every single... And Sodom and Gomorrah, it's like, that particular volume is where you just realize that everybody is gay. Like literally everybody in 19th and 20th century Paris in that time was gay. Like literally every Duke, every single person. Before there was gay, everybody was gay. Everybody slept with everybody and they didn't have words for it. And you know, when I was a kid, like the idea was so repellent and gross that you know, even if they called me a fag, which they did till I like literally puke, like every day of my life, that was my fucking nickname or something, you know? Um, it, was, it, was, it was building on such a level that you just can't even imagine, right? But first of all, I was resilient. And second of all, I don't think that they even understood what it meant. Like, I don't even think they understood that, you know, like men could fuck each other or do stuff to each other. They didn't even know what they were implying. And if they did, I'm sure they would have gone like, oh my God, what the fuck, really? You know, like, because, right? So they were like, oh, he's effeminate. So let's just call him a fag. But they didn't understand that they were sort of implying all the stuff that goes along with the homosexual act or something. Does that make sense? It's like when yeah, you call absolutely. a girl a slut, you don't go like, oh, she's like taking, you know, it's, I, I, you don't really. So that's what I have to say about it. Somehow I was resilient and I was able to kind of default to my feelings, which could not be wrong. And I'm not sure where I got that from. It certainly wasn't from yeshiva, but I knew that my feelings were not wrong. And that's what guided me. If there's one word I think of when I think of you, it's resilience. So it's interesting to hear that this sort of is so rooted in your in your past. So, Isaac, you're 10 years old when your father gives you a sewing machine. And it wasn't the standard gift for a 10 year old boy at the time. Um, How did you manifest that for yourself? Well, he didn't give it to me, darling. I bought it. I would say I was 11 and I, and I babysat this whole summer. And at the end of the summer, I went to the Singer Center where we had this place for the summer in New Jersey on the shore called Deal. There was like a mall with a singer in it. And I wanted my mother to come with me, but instead my father came and he knew everything about sewing machines. And he identified a better sewing machine at the Singer Center, an old machine that was so beautiful. And I'm so lucky that he did that. And I'm so lucky that he came with me that day. And it was like a little more expensive than the machine I actually wanted to buy, the kind of modern machine. And so he kicked in like 20 bucks or something. But I bought that machine with my own money. It's a funny thing. I'm not exactly sure what 
it was that propelled me. I was making puppets and I was sewing them by hand. And I just thought, oh, how nifty it would be to have a straight stitch machine. You know, I didn't understand. I had never been exposed to, I didn't know what, I didn't know. But I just thought, oh, you know, have a sewing machine. What a great thing to have if you're, if you're me, right? And so that's how it happened. It was me who picked out the thing. You know, it was me. It was my kind of thing that I wanted that machine. And it wasn't to make clothes. I, I didn't see clothes as an art form. I saw it more as like a daily thing. You know, like you eat, you put something on. There's like health and hygiene or something. No, really, that's, to me, that's what clothes are about a lot. So much more than, than I mean, I love artifice. I love, love it. But I love flesh more. I love bodies more than I love fashion, you know? My father, if he had his druthers, I don't think, I think, you know, he had like a woodworking shop in, in the basement of our house and it was fabulous. And I kind of commandeered that also. I made like theaters, I made like puppet theaters. And so I would go in there and I would destroy his, his tools. But the point is that if ever he engaged me in anything, it was always to fix something around the house. He was much more hell bent on teaching me how to like fix something with a hammer or with a screw or something, right? than he was about teaching me to sell. But once he understood that I had this calling, he got very involved, you know. I didn't really feel the love from my father. I didn't. I mean, he was a great guy. And there were moments, obviously, but I felt that he didn't, he wished I was a different kind of a boy, I think. And so that was, a lot of it was lost between us. This kind of closeness might have been lost because I think he wanted a different kind of a son that was more interested in fixing things around the house or sports. Even though he wasn't into sports himself, I think it just would have been more fun for him if I asked to have a catch as opposed to, right? But then eventually he started buying me these attachments for the sewing machine and just kind of bringing them for me. And I thought, you know, later in my life, I sort of realized, I acknowledged that that was him kind of like reaching back and sort of showing me some kind of love and care. You know, me, who I was. You know, I think it's interesting as gay people, the older we get, we're able to look at some, or at least in my experience, the way I'm able to look at some of the ways in which my parents might have been signaling their acceptance of me and, and the evolution of that acceptance over time, I'm much more able to look at that now and see small gestures that seemed really uninteresting at the time that I now recognize were their ways, particularly my father, his way of telephoning his love for me. Like what? Can you cite? I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me is this notion of pride that my parents, particularly my father, was much more comfortable saying he was proud of me than he loved me. Like to have pride in my work. So I was a child of musical theater. And so like when I would put on uh, one of my shows and everything, that was when he felt the most comfortable expressing his love because again, it could be telegraphed onto, he loved the theatrical production that came from his son. And so therefore he loved his son. Right. Well, I mean, a few things about that. One, the fact that you were obviously out to your parents at a young age, right? What age did you come out to them? 16. You came out at 16. Well, I came out to my mom at like 17 or eight, 17 and a half. And I never came out to my dad. And so you had that going for you. Are they still alive, your parents? Yeah. They're both alive. Okay, so you have that going for you. One thing we should dispel right away. I think this is such a good time to say this. 
if you don't come out to your dad or something, or you don't like your family, that's okay. I think it's perfectly okay. One great thing about being gay, as RuPaul says every fucking week on that amazing show, right? Which by the way, right now is what I'm absolutely living for, really. But the point is that you really do get to turn your back on your actual kin because they don't accept you or they won't accept you or they won't have fun with you the way you want to have fun. In the end, isn't it about that? Isn't it about like the amusement of it, you know, right? It's like, if you can't be amused by the person that I am, then I want nothing to do with you. And so like, we were talking about people who telescope their love for us and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and we can kind of accommodate it in whatever way. But it's certainly no reason to drop everything and run with open arms to them. You know what I mean? If you don't feel it, I say, don't waste too much time on it. If I were your therapist, I'd go like, let's move on. Can we put a pin in that? We'll come back to that. Yeah, your mother will come back to that. And yet, of course, that's all you think about, right? But I'm talking about finding that family that does nurture you, that does. I mean, when I was 13, I went to performing arts high school. Uh Uh-oh. Wait, you know what? Um, Hold on. I just have to... Are you getting that? Oh, wait. Yeah, Um, no problem. Sorry. Jim, I've got to call you back. Bye. Bye, Jim. Bye. Sorry. Sorry. That's my partner. (laughs) Sorry about that. I'm sorry, Alden. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. It was horrible. Anyway, sorry. Where were we? So in 1988, you make your runway debut. I spoke to a fashion historian friend ahead of today, and he said, quote, I don't think anyone in my 40 years of fashion burst onto the scene with a first show the way Isaac did. What do you remember from that collection and how it was received? Well, I remember a few things. I remember that I wasn't present so much in the cultural happening of the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Joe, like my head was down for the entire thing. I was looking at bows and shoe ties and the hair and the earring if it was set properly and the music cues and I was like you know cueing the guy for the music and there were girls changing and in those days you booked like 20 girls or 17 girls and you showed a lot of clothes and they would change their fucking clothes fast and it was really really like exciting and fun and also like hard you know it was really hard to get a girl look like she's been in those clothes 
when she literally just pulled them on and barely zipped the zipper up and changed her tights and her shoes and her hair and her, this has to be adjusted. And that, I mean, it was, so that's what really my focus was in that first show. And when I came onto the runway, I saw Veronica Webb, you know, like she came off at the end of the show and she said to me, you're the king of New York. I said to her, you know what, just stop fucking. Like I thought, I thought that she was being nice because I thought I was about to be destroyed. And I walked onto the runway on this crazy kind of standing ovation. And not just from my friends, but from everybody in that room. And it was a small loft on Green Street in Soho, which I later, you know, because I was working in an even smaller loft, you know, and then I moved into that bigger loft, but still now I look at it as so tiny. Um, so that's where I was during the whole show. I was not present in the glory of it. I was present in the trenches of it, you know, the scrum. Yeah. I was in the scrum of it. And then as far as the adulation, it made me very uncomfortable. For me, I think it's much easier to fail than it is to succeed at something, you know? Let's take a quick break. And we're back. Many credit you with really bringing to prominence the celebrity front row. You know, nowadays that's sort of standard fare for the runway, but it wasn't at the time. Where did that impulse first come from to invite celebrities to sit front row at a fashion show? Well, you know, a lot of it just happened. I didn't really try that hard. And what's funny is I never had a stylist. I never worked with a stylist. Only later I worked with Lori Goldstein and I loved working with her, but I resented the idea of needing a stylist because I don't need a stylist. I know what shoes and hair and makeup should go with the dresses that I design. That's crazy to say that I don't. And I was doing it for, you know, how many fucking years? And then everybody was like, oh, no, no, you need a stylist. And so I picked Lori because she was a friend and we understood each other. But the point is that I never had like, you know, Keeble Cavaco and Duca organizing the show and the first row. And I didn't have any of that stuff. And we, oh, look, that's my dog. He's agreeing with this. We never paid anybody to sit in the front row. I mean, that's a whole invention of, I don't know whose, but to me, it's sick. When you have to pay people to sit in your front row, then what the hell? You've got to tell me what that means. My point is, I'm not sure how the whole first row thing started. It was like Liza Minnelli happened to be a friend of mine and she was interested in coming and she came. And I didn't even call her. She would like, you know, somebody called her and said, oh, come to his show or something. Or, you know, she was really, I remember this, she was really friendly with people like John Fairchild was her friend. And I remember she said to me, I was sitting next to John and he was talking about you. I was like, John as in John. I mean, this is Liza, right? Or or Sandra. And Sandra bought Roseanne and Madonna would come to the show and Robert De Niro because he liked seeing the models. I mean, he didn't give a shit about my clothes, right? But he would come or like, you know, Russell Simmons like insisted on coming to my shows. And I was happy to have them because it was a glamorous scene. And um, and that's what that's what it was. It was just this glamorous actual scene. And it was live theater, and there weren't the clubs in those days. By that point, even area, there were no clubs, so people started coming to shows. And now they're kind of like paying each other to create a scene, and it's like, and everybody gets something out of it, and there's always a licensing deal, and it's like, ew, what does this mean? What does this mean, you know? And I want to uh, know, like, how old are you, Evan? I'm 30, 31. You're 30. Okay. And so, like, do you go out? Do you go to, like, clubs? Well, not currently. Uh, <laughs> uh, not so much anymore. That was a big part of my 20s. Yeah, me too. Me too. And into my 30s. I liked clubs when I was a kid. You know, I wasn't the person who, like, went 
for hours. I mean, I was the person who like had a dinner party and then everybody went to some club after the dinner, you know, and usually on something, which was fun. But it was like, everybody was too busy to really be like obsessed with something, you know, with a drug or whatever. We were too, I was too busy. I couldn't wake up in the morning if I had too much to drink or too much cocaine or something, you know? Yeah. But the point is that after a while, it isn't the focus of your life. I want to ask about your last runway soundtrack in which you use the Valley of the Dolls soundtrack for the runway show. And I bring that up because I feel like a lot of the references that we see lately within fashion tend to be quite obvious. And obviously I'm making a generalization in saying that, but I found your references throughout your career to be so specific. And I'm just wondering what other, and I know you love movies so much, as you mentioned, what movies for you have given you the most to sort of mine in terms of pulling references? It could be the silliest thing in the world, which I usually prefer, like something that I know no one else is watching at the moment. And when I say like, you know, there's a dress that's beautiful, that's Adrian or something, or Ori Kelly that I will just kind of completely be inspired by or something, as opposed to plagiarize, because I don't think I plagiarize. I mean, I think I take ideas and I usually spin them, you know, in the same way that you see like a lot of artists, great artists take ideas and make them into something else, right? So it's not plagiarism, but like most times, and I kid you not, it's an optical illusion. Inspiration is an optical illusion. Like if you're watching a movie and you go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 you know, and you re rewind and rewind. And it's not an actual, it's a shadow. You're seeing a shadow is what you're seeing. And you think you're seeing, you know, like a flower or a print or something. And you're not. It's a total... It's a total illusion. You know, like so many times I'm walking down the street and I'm like, oh my God, what is that? And I will follow somebody, you know, and like obsessively stare at their shoes, which aren't like a pair of Adidas or something, but there's something that just happened to them. Like they stepped in shit or something and it's really beautiful to me. And that's what, you know what I mean? So it's always, so, okay. So what movies? I, you know, there's so many movies that I love and that I've been major inspired by. I just always think of that scene in Unzipped when you're watching Nanak of the North in bed and you're reacting so viscerally to it. And it's it's such a charming moment because you're so the intensity of your love for it comes through so much in terms of how much you get from it. But, you know, that was a mistake. I mean, like, I'm sure I had seen I'm positive that I'd seen Nanak of the North at the Thalia or something when I was right. And then all of a sudden it was on TV. It was like, oh, this old thing, right? And I'll watch, oh, wait a minute now, you know, Nanak of the, oh, wait a second. She's wearing fur pants, you know, right? So you see what I mean? That's just a mistake. Whereas like, you know, the movies that I go back to again and again, like the red shoes or something, or, mm. you know, whatever the movies are that I go back to, it's because I'm gay and I just like movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like, like, <laughs> I like ballet a lot, so I really love that ballet in the middle of the red shoes, you know? What's the most recent film to have come out that has really given you that same feeling, that same inspiration? Okay, I'll tell you. I mean, I liked Little Women. Did you see that movie, that Greta Gerwig movie? I mean, not a big fan of the source material, and I think that Greta Gerwig really bent over backwards and made it into something that, I'm sorry, it just isn't. It's about little women. It's not about like big, powerful women who go to publishers and say, you publish my book with, you know, blah, blah, and I want 20%, blah, blah. And I haven't read the book in a long time, so maybe she did like go back and maybe it really is this big sort of 
feminist manifesto that she made it into. But as I remember the source material, oh, you know, not the best book in the world. Just because it's the most popular book in the world, it doesn't make it the best book in the world, you know? Period. Um, and all those little twee stories. And I've seen a thousand versions of it. And I'm obsessed with the Katherine Hepburn version, right? And I'm obsessed, by the way, with um, the other version with, what's her name, June Allison. I mean, that is an hilarious terrible version of Little Women, right? But this was good. I mean, I, I was glued to it, you know? The casting was so good. There were some fine-looking men in that movie. For a movie called Little Women, there were some fine-looking men, okay? <laughs> um, but also, I loved, the styling was unbelievable. That was enough to make, like, any kind of crazy fag happy, you know? So I want to go back to the late 80s, early 90s. You're really coming up in fashion at the time. You were a young gay man that was also coming up in the midst of the AIDS crisis. And I'm wondering what impact that had on you to be having your career coming up at a time in which your community was suffering so much. It was very rich with a variety of feelings. You know, I was very, like, motivated. And, and I have to say, they were very, very separate thoughts. You know, there was my career as a fashion designer, and then there were all the friends that were dying. You know, it didn't really become this subject for my work. You know, I remember like, you know, my, my best friend is Mark Morris, right? You know, the great choreographer. And I remember after 9-11, he premiered this dance. It was called V. Everyone thought that it was about 9-11, right? And it wasn't. It just wasn't. And, and recently, I was actually just commissioned by the Guggenheim to maybe come up with like something about some kind of quarantine art with like a collaboration, a cyber collaboration. And so I called this other friend of mine, this choreographer called Pam Tanowitz. And there was a song I was considering, this one song, and it was dead on. It was about, you know, like what's going on at the moment. And then I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't want that. I, and we ended up choosing, I think, this Scarlatti, this little bit of Scarlatti. And um, because it has nothing to do, it's just a beautiful kind of pastoral little tiny piano sonata, you know? And um, it has nothing to do with anything that's going on, but it has a lot to do with everything that's going on because you're feeling it, right? So does that make sense to you? It's like, it's like you know, just because I lived through AIDS and I was an artist at the time doesn't mean my work was about AIDS. It was because it's who I am. I mean, you can't get away from it, right? It can't be separated out. But it wasn't specifically about AIDS. Yeah. You know? I mean, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the current status of the LGBTQ plus liberation movement? My thoughts about it? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm not really sure what kind of an answer I'm supposed to get. Well, let me ask it to you through this lens. I feel as though there was a fight um, within queer people of that generation, whether or not you had AIDS or not, we, there was a, a sense of we are all in this fight. And what I'm asking about now is we seem more divided than ever as an LGBTQ plus community in terms of our goals. And also there's just more separation. And so that's what, when I ask the question, I ask it through that lens. Well, okay. And you know, there's a few answers in that case because I've always loved being gay, not just because I love dick, okay? 
because I just love being, I used to love going like to secret little places and just, you have to read my book. I don't know if you read my book. Of course. Oh, you did. Because there's a whole thing about like these cocktail parties that happened in the early 80s. They were called boys night or boy parties or something. And they were like happening at Columbia you know, in the lobby of Saatchi and Saatchi. I mean, they were really like these kind of above board places. And it was like, oh my God, we're like going to like a gay dance at Columbia, like pinch me, you know? There was something so incredibly wonderful about that at the time, because it wasn't going on. And there was something incredible about walking into like Uncle Charlie's, which was this gay bar on Greenwich Avenue or cahoots or something on the Upper West Side or whatever it was. And you were gay in a gay bar. It was like the greatest thing in the world. Now, I don't think there's that kind of solidarity between LGBTQ plus people, right? And I think that's as it should be. I believe in evolution. You know, you can't keep something like, thank God we're not, you know, sequestered, right? But there was something extremely fun about that. And as much as I miss it, I don't regret a, for a second that this dialogue has become bigger and more charged, more politically charged. I'm for it, you know? I believe in what I believe in, and I'm so excited by a young generation who tells me new stuff about how they want to be perceived. And of course, personally, I can root out the fraud in all of it. I can go, oh yeah, well, she's a fraud, you know, whilst, you know, this person really actually has an agenda. And, you know, it's kind of like pop music, right? You know, I love Billie Eilish and I don't know why. I just love her because I feel like, you know, or they, I love them. I love Billie Eilish because I think that they are like for real, like she means what she says and she feels it and it comes out where they feel it and it comes out. And so, you know, I, they have me, they have me right where they want me. Whereas like, you know, there are like some fraudulent people doing music and doing like, eh, it's like, oh, come on, you know, sorry, but you can feel when something is real. So hooray for LGBTQ plus fights. Hooray for that. Cause that's the only way you move forward, you know? Agreed. So on a recent rainy afternoon in quarantine, I got really high and I decided to rewatch Unzipped, which is the acclaimed 1995 film directed by your then boyfriend, Douglas Keeve. That film chronicles the creation of your fall winter 1994 collection. I could do a whole interview with you on that documentary, but I'll spare you. But being that you knew the director quite well, and from my understanding, financed the film yourself, you obviously had a great amount of control. Oh, wait, incorrect? Well, you know, I just, it wasn't my personal, it was my company that financed it. And I was just kind of signing checks along, you know, it was like very shady. And luckily I didn't go to jail because luckily, I don't know, you read the book, right? Luckily it was delivered exactly when it needed to get delivered. And so it got paid for. And then finally we sold it to Miramax for like, and we made maybe $1 on the whole thing. And by the way, it didn't cost a lot to make at all. But yeah, it was me kind of executive producing it. And so I'm struck by the fact that fashion designers at that point weren't so much personalities in the way that they are so commonly today. What did you want this documentary to convey about you? I think because I am not a formularist, I don't go, hey, I love a gardenia and boucle and a spectator pump. And that's, I've discovered that now that I'm 35 or 40 years old. And that's all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm just going to do gardenias and spectator pumps and boucle. 
I'm not that kind of artist. I, I always like to kind of do stuff and just assume that people understand that I have integrity and that it's coming from my hands and coming from my brain. I like to not talk down to people, right? So there needed to be some vehicle that explained that for me, surprise was like the number one element of fashion, right? Like, honestly, I still love surprise. And now I just hate fashion. I just hate it. I think it's the worst. It's partially what it's become. It's just become this kind of like clown sideshow thing. No, really, I mean this. I'm just going to say it to you, but also because there's no surprise to it at all, you know, and there's no actual thing going on. You know, it's like even the greatest show in the world is a bunch of skirts and sweaters and like, I, I, and a lot of styling. I mean it. And that can sound bitter. I don't mind if that sounds bitter because I think maybe that'll help people doing it to make it better. When you have accomplished in your life the things that you have, I don't think there's any way in which you can sound bitter because you are someone that has been a part of this industry for so long and has so much love for fashion. I don't even get an ounce of bitterness. I just want to- Well, thank you. That's so nice of you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so then I'll get really bitter if you don't mind. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, <laughs> no, but, but you know, the point is that like, I don't like fashion anymore. I just don't like it. I don't like it as it exists right now. And that's not anybody's problem, right? But I also don't like the idea of it. And I can't believe, I mean, I love clothes and I love design, but I don't like fashion. I just don't like it. I don't like what it ever was. Like, I don't know what came over me all those years to actually care so much about it, you know? I'm sorry, that's like just where I am with it. And by the way, that's how I've evolved. I've become this designer and I've left fashion behind because I don't care about it so much. I don't believe in it anymore. It's like a bunch of smoke and mirrors and I'm too old or something to care. By the way, there are people that are much older than me that care much more and that are amazing at it, by the way. They're great. But personally, this is who I've evolved into, right? And so like, I, I guess you're right. That doesn't sound bitter. I was sounding a little bit bitter about like not liking clothes and I just don't like the way they push things in directions. It's like, what are we, stupid? I get it. You know, I get it. I can get it if you like, bring it down a few notches. Like, come on, you know, like. And there have been some incredibly beautiful things that I've noticed that I absolutely love. That's something that we have to talk about for one second because my generation, which is not the baby boomers, right? And it's not generation X exactly. It's sort of like right in the middle between boomers and X, right? And mm -hmm. there was something about the necessity of everything being extremely smart first. You had to be extremely smart. And then visually, it had to be great. And then it had to be this and that. And it had to refer to things. And, and then it, and above all, it had to be inventive and fresh and a surprise, right? Like to me. And somehow now, it doesn't have to be smart at all, you know? And, and somehow now, I fear for a generation that thinks that only porn is sexy. That's a real reduction in quality to me. That's a steep decline in quality. Any generation that is raised on porn as just something that is, that's what the young generation thinks is sexy. And that's really scary to me because what happened to some kind of demure decolletage on a smart man even, you know, like on a smart guy that doesn't have 
a full face of makeup and that isn't getting gang banged. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is sexy about people that isn't necessarily sex. And so that's where I have a little problem with everything. It's like everything is this big exaggeration. I want to go back and ask one more question about the film. One of my favorite moments in that movie by a long shot is when you call Naomi Campbell a Mary which is a very small reference for a select amount of gay people that just understand the colloquial term of Mary. It's a form of adoration. And so that movie, besides Naomi Campbell, we've got Sandra Bernhardt, Eartha Kitt, Cindy Crawford, Kate Moss, Linda Evangelista, you name it. Of the big gun models from that era, who do you keep in touch with today? None, except Veronica. Veronica and I are really good friends. Um, you know, I, I follow some people on Instagram. I follow Shalom on Instagram. I love Shalom. Shalom and I are, are friends, but we don't see each other all the time, whereas I see Veronica on a regular basis. Also, I follow Josie Burain. Recently, I had some feelings with her on Instagram, but that's about it. And I will say this about calling someone Mary in 1994. It was a joke, a funny joke, a great joke. It was about jokes, you know, like... Because for me, unless your sexuality is integrated, it's not, it just doesn't work if you're calling attention to it. So it's like when I would do a collection, if it was too gay, I wouldn't, oh, it was too gay. You know, it's like, it has to be gay. I don't want it to be too gay or not gay enough. You know what I mean? So like for me, that's why I don't usually love gay plays and gay movies. And I just don't like it so much. Same. Yeah. So like a joke like that, you know, hey, Mary, take your thing out. I mean, that was like funny and it was about her belly button. Belly ring. button ring. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you see what I mean? There was a whole moment when like Vogue just went insane for all this gay stuff about 20 years ago, much later than Unzipped. Like, I don't know, about 2000 or something or 2005 or 2010. Just every damn thing was about gay. Everything had to be like so gay or like about, you know, all the gay themes like S&M and ultra fay or whatever it was. And it was like, really though? Now y'all are like into the gay thing. It made me sick. You know, sorry it did. It made me a little sick. Do you read Vogue today? No, no. Honestly, never really read Vogue. I read it when I was a kid. I was like mad for it. I poured over every page. And then you know, and I worked for different people. I had to read it because it was like, right. And then when I started on my own, I tried to keep in touch with it, but then I just couldn't because if you look at it, it will throw you off. All you think about is why your plaid dress didn't get, you know, that plaid dress, you know what I mean? It's, it's a very big depressing thing. And so, you know, I would rely on people that work with me to like sort of leave a note, like a post-it sticker on the pages in Vogue or pages in Bazaar that I would get, and I would write to like editors thanking them for yeah. work. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you a series of random questions. Favorite memory from filming Sex in the City? Maybe seeing Sarah Jessica's bra tree. She had this insane bra hanger thing that was like just masses of bras. Favorite celebrity you've ever dressed? You know, um, Arnold, my husband, is in the city. I'm here in Bridgehampton. He's in the city in the apartment. And he came across this picture of Natasha Richardson from the Golden Globes from like 1997 or something. And he sent me, it was like, wow, Natasha. I really loved Natasha. She was a great person. I really loved her. And she was kind of a friend. And Liza. And Liza. And Sandra. 
Sorry, go on. So two last questions. One is a submission from the designer Christopher John Rogers. He wanted to ask you a question. So I hope this isn't too esoteric or wordy, but was there a time in either your design or performance career where you felt like you were truly doing the thing that you were called to do and happy with the work you were creating and knew what the world at large expected of your work, but for some reason you felt compelled to try something else or something new because of either interior expectations or desires and how did you deal with that? How do you personally deal with interior creative conflicts? You know, I mean, the answer to that is that's sort of the trajectory of my life. And hi, Christopher, by the way, I love your work. But anyway, the answer to that is like, I mean this, it's like the workings, the trajectory of my life, how I got here and how I'm going to get to the next place. When I was a fashion designer, you know, I got a sense of pleasure out of things like textiles, fitting clothes on women. I just loved it. I, I really adored fittings. I loved being in my little studio sketching for hours and hours with music. I mean, that's what I loved about it. But the minute it was like, oh, I, I didn't like shows. I didn't like sittings. I didn't like what I was supposed to like about it. You know, I hated that stuff. And what I really was trying to do was to tell a story. That's what I think I'm supposed to be doing is telling stories. And then I started, you know, doing shows in, but I never stopped doing shows. I mean, in high school, I was an actor and then I did shows in small nightclubs in the city forever. So just like, in January, you just did your last cabaret. Yeah, at the Carlisle. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I've been doing them throughout. And so like, it's this weird thing about doing these two things. And in, I think my favorite thing to do is move forward in show business. And like, you know, I told you that I'm about to do this dance, I think that Pam Tanowitz is going to choreograph. I mean, that's insane. And that's like, I just thought, you know, I suck at dancing. Maybe, just maybe there's something interesting about this figure that like I can bring to the fore. Maybe I can challenge myself. And at this late stage in my life, at the age of 58, I can move in some beautiful way. Last question. Were you surprised by the pushback you received to your February endorsement of then Democratic presidential contender Mike Bloomberg? I was very, very surprised by that. Yes, I was very surprised by it. And I'm not exactly sure where it came from. I, I suspect it was Bernie Sanders supporters, right? Because I don't think Republicans gave a shit at that point, right? Maybe it was some Republicans who were, but it was mostly people who loved Bernie Sanders. And I love Bernie Sanders for a lot of reasons. But Mike Bloomberg is someone who I thought as a leader, I was very, very surprised that people saw him that way because I don't, I don't see him as this vicious, evil oligarch, you know? I see him as this really smart guy who built this huge empire and made a lot of money. But he always uses it to, I think, a really, really good end. And I know there are people on the LGBTQ plus spectrum that are going to say incredibly contrary things. But posterity will look back on Mike Bloomberg and say he really helped the gay people of the world and the lesbians and the gender fluid people of the world. So they can blow back right now, but posterity will look back at him and, and know that he was a very good person. 
I want to thank you so much for your time. It's truly the honor of a lifetime. I will forever be the greatest fan of yours. The books, the cabaret act, the fashion design, QVC, you name it, Target. I mean, like, there's just, my love goes far. Thank you. I have one final question for you. Who do you think Biden should get as his running mate? Who I think it will be is Elizabeth Warren. Who do I think it should be is Stacey Abrams. Right, me too. I think Agreed. it should be Stacey Abrams. Okay, maybe yeah. we can make a ploy for that. All right, thank yeah. you. Thanks, Alden. Of course. Thank Evan. Okay. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced by Alden Peters with additional editing by Ryan Killian Krause. We just want to take one more moment to thank our Patreon subscribers who make this possible. If you are not subscribing to our Patreon, do it today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.